Finnovate showcases cutting-edge banking and financial technology through a global conference series featuring short-form demos and thought leadership. Now, the conversation continues on the Finnovate podcast. Hello and welcome to the Finnovate podcast. Joining me today, we have William Crowder, Managing Partner at Aperture Venture Capital. William, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Greg. So to kick things off, I'd like to give people a little bit of insight into your background. Can you take a quick minute and just tell us who you are and what Aperture is all about? Sure. I am one of the founding partners of Aperture Venture Capital. Um, We are a relatively speaking new fund uh, with a focus on investing at the intersection of financial innovation and culture. Um, If you think about where financial um, innovation and and fintech meets diversity and opportunities to build a more inclusive economy, that's where you'll find us. Um, We're backed by some major um, corporations because they have a fairly unique model in terms of how we approach working with companies. And we've got folks that have invested in us, which include um, FIS, Truist, PayPal, Bank of America, and a few others we have not announced yet publicly. Um, but our hope is that through the collective work of the, and engagement of those partners, along with the work that our team will do, that we'll have an opportunity to support some of the, the, the next generation of um, fintech leaders and giants. Um, and hopefully those will be companies that are led by more diverse founders, um, a different group of people than we've seen historically lead these types of companies. Yeah, I know it's it's a cool mission. And I think it's one that we certainly are very supportive of at Finnovate as well. The idea of getting more diverse people into the ecosystem is really crucial for the long-term success of the ecosystem itself. Um, otherwise, you get this tunnel vision, you get these you know, kind of self-reinforcing dynamic, which is not ultimately healthy. So um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's really a, an interesting organization. And, and I, I would encourage people listening to learn a little bit more about what they do. I wanted to talk today specifically about kind of the security companies that you invest in. I know we've talked a little bit before getting on the line here today, and there are a couple of different companies that you work with in that security space, which is a really interesting one right now in the fintech space. Um, And looking at this at a really high level, where do you see kind of the biggest threats coming into this space uh, or coming into fintech, I should say, in the security arena? Sure. Um, You know, this is an, we spoke about this before. I mean, this is a a hot area. Um, Obviously, a ton of capital went in, went into those types of startups, cybersecurity startups um, last year. Um, Certainly, I think towards the end of last year and even uh, Q4 of 2021. And we're already looking at probably record numbers again in 2022. There's a number of different areas that I think are interesting, but at the core, of what's interesting to me and interesting to Aperture is this notion of asset protection. I think that, um, you know, we, everyone is kind of thinking about, well, you know, it's financial services, it's financial technology must be related to protecting my money. And that's true. But, you know, the, the, the definition of asset is changing tremendously. And because of that, I think that we're going to find ourselves far more vulnerable um, to attack. And it's an area where there's not going to be a singular solution. There are going to be multiple solutions that are going to be requ- that will be required. And as a result, that means there's a lot of different opportunity to make investments and ideally um, do well in the process. 
Yeah, I think one of the pieces that we want to spend some time unpacking is this idea of what exactly is an asset, right? Because yeah. I think there are so many different places that you could consider, you know, what an asset could be. And this is one of those things where you, we should probably have some definitions around that. So what do you consider to be you know, assets that we really need to be safeguarding in this kind of context? Well, it's so interesting because, you know, I think there's two ways of looking at it. I think from a corporate standpoint, you know, you always kind of think about what are the things that are most important to us in our business? That's, that's, those are our assets, right? As an individual, I think about it in terms of what do I care about so much that I would fight tooth and nail to ensure that nothing happened to it. That's the way I think about it. And so, yeah, you'll, you'll fight tooth and nail for your money, except when someone pulls a gun on you and they're taking your wallet and you're like, you know, give them the wallet, you move on because you can get more money. But you grab one of my kids or something that represents their uniqueness and now we have a real problem. And so, you know, when we think about protecting assets, asset protection includes the assets that are obvious as well as those that are non-obvious, those that are not physical anymore uh, necessarily. They may be digital. Um, They can be financial, but even in the financial realm, they're still digital or can be. And so you now have, you're, you're kind of faced with this approach, this strategy that requires an understanding of how do I protect my digital assets? How do I protect my physical assets? And how do I understand who has access to them and under what circumstances? And am I keeping keeping track of that? Am I okay with that? And do I have a reasonable amount of control over who gets access to them, how they access them, access them and then how they use them? Yeah. And I think when you look at it from a kind of a company standpoint, you start to think about obviously every company is going to protect their financial assets, but there's a lot more that goes on that companies really have to make sure that they're safeguarding. There's intellectual property, there's Mm -hmm. processes that they need to guard. And here's where we're seeing obviously a lot of people kind of attacking and going after those pieces with kind of ransomware attacks, which are increasing in frequency. This idea, if you don't pay me money, then I'm going to prevent you from being able to get, you know, your own data back. And, and for, for many companies, that data represents a much more valuable asset than the money. And so they think, well, okay, in this case, I'm going to pay that money to get that data back. You think about you know the Coca-Cola executives who actually know the recipe for Coca-Cola. How valuable yeah. is that single bit of information? And, and this is the problem that we're having right now with these kind of ransomware attacks where you see people going after non-financial assets and getting money in exchange for releasing them again. And here's a completely different type of security breach, security conflict that we need to really be focusing on as an industry. No, we do. And, and, you know, you think about what happens if you're victimized by that. You are you have multiple guns to your head. Right. So they took your information. That's gun number one. Gun number two is time. So if I'm a business owner, let's just forget the major corporations. If I am a small business owner and all of a sudden this data is taken away from me and someone's holding it, it's affecting me every single day. I don't, you know, perhaps I'm not a multi-million dollar a day business. Perhaps I'm more like $10,000, dollars $30,000 a day, if that. I can't afford it. I can't afford to be without it for a week, maybe not right. even a couple of days. And so that's the second gun to my head. And the idea of playing it out or playing the long game or trying to find alternatives, I'm running out of time. I can't do that. 
So the worst thing, you know, the, the best thing I could possibly do is just go ahead and pay them. That may be my best course of action, in which case that reinforces the idea, oh, we can just do this again, right? So, you know, the the things that we're, the, the techniques that we employ, uh, the strategies that we use to combat this um, have to be really, really good. Um, they've got to be quick. We're talking about quick responses, impactful responses. And if you are at risk, if you're vulnerable to that, you know, we have to start thinking about, well, what is our true recovery strategy? If this actually happened, do we just let them keep it and we have a backup plan to move on? Um, you know, how do we protect the data? You know, how do we think about what's most vulnerable? And if we, if it was taken, could we recover? You know, I think all those things are, are part of that overall equation now, the risk reward consideration, right? Figuring out what do I do if we actually have this happen? You know, what's our threshold for pain? How long can we go? How much can we spend? Like, what do we do here? Yeah, no, and these are really difficult questions to answer. And then, of course, you multiply that by the sheer number of organizations. You know, if you as an individual think about how many different companies have some of your personal data and how many, in many cases, you know, obviously it's these big companies, it's, you know, financial companies, of course, but um, there's also a lot of lower level organizations and we're starting to see people kind of attacking these lower level organizations, which are a lot, uh, have, have a lot fewer security measures in place, you know, volunteer organizations that require personal information or background checks before you can volunteer or, you know, community groups or church groups or what have you. There's a huge number of uh, individual organizations that are holding personal sensitive data about a number of people. In some cases, it's 50 or 100 people but you still have all of these places as a source of vulnerability. And now here is where we need to kind of turn this episode because right now it's been a very depressing episode so far. <laughs> we've had, you know, we've got guns to your head. We've got all these problems coming around. We better start talking about some solutions here really quickly or else this is going to turn really depressing. So let's go ahead and start looking at that because obviously one of the things that you're looking at, you're working with companies who are trying to fight against this. And, yeah. and I think that's the question that kind of has to be top of mind right now, given this new type of attack or I guess increased usage of this type of attack, what can banks and others in the fintech ecosystem really do here? Yeah, so um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll bring ourselves back from the brink a little bit and um, talk about what's what's possible and what's promising, what we're seeing. Um, I think there's two, two areas that I find particularly interesting um, one of those is I call it the, the anti the anti honeypot strategy, which is you know, everyone kind of knows within the security space this notion of the honeypot, which is if I can get access to that area, that part of your business, I get everything right. I get I find all this is a treasure trove of information and data that I can use for a variety of different purposes. So. How do we fix that? How do we address that? Well, you get rid of the honeypots, right? So, like, if you get into this space, unfortunately for you, you only get one piece of data, or maybe you get one piece, one 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 component of the overall one piece of the overall puzzle, but you don't know where the rest of the pieces are. So, you didn't really get anything. You got a bunch of stuff, but it's not usable. Um, so, we're we're in the area of biometrics as an example, where we're concerned about identity authentication. Um, leveraging fingerprints or facial recognition or iris scans, et cetera. Um, if I am operating in a place where I have all that information centralized, then I'm vulnerable, 
to the hackers. I'm vulnerable to anyone who can get access to information. But if I can decentralize all of that and scatter it all over the planet, so to speak, then it's next to impossible, hopefully, for anyone to come in and grab access to that information and piece it all back together. So we're seeing companies like that. You know, people have been working this for a long time, and and I think we're going to hear more and more about how people are doing that um, and building that into their products or services and their access um, their access processes within their companies. So that's one. Um, and I think the other area is is kind of like similar to the way we built Aperture is this strength and numbers approach, which is to say that um, collaboration may be one of the best defenses that we have um, to thwart attacks. Um, you know, I can't possibly know how to do everything by myself, but me plus a couple other folks may be a completely different situation. Um, I've seen companies where they know that if they attack company A today, then B and C are going to follow in that order and in short short period of time. Well, if we already know that, then does A, company A, company B, and company C, do they know that? And would they be willing to work together to ensure that this doesn't happen to them? And that may make for very strange bedfellows. You know, you may see alliances that we just would not expect to see. But at the end of the day, what's more important? Is it the competitive nature between A, B, and C? Or is it the idea that A, B, and C are free to to, uh, compete because they are shielded from the outside bad actors? So what is it that's more important to the business? And I think that as more and more of these attacks occur, I think we're going to find, and also with pressure from the government, I think we're going to find that these uncomfortable alliances are going to become more and more common. Um, because there's a greater good that they are going to um, be working for. Um, and that's, it's just the reality. This thing is too, um, it, it's, it's too amorphous. It changes too frequently, too dynamically um, to just say that, hey, we figured it out and we don't need any help. We're all good. Um, we're not. And I think the moment anyone says that by themselves or in a vacuum, um, they, you know, they're announcing, they're announcing, hey, I'm over here and I have a target. Have a right. on my head. You put I'm a bullseye me. on your back and <laughs> exactly. you stand up and say, you know, we're, we've got security as a strategic advantage for us. There's going to be That's somebody exactly out there hearing right. the message and be like, oh, yeah, really? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so I think yeah. this is a really interesting one. Um, I do want to I'm just kind of looking at the clock here and I want to get a, my, my next question in under the, the deadline. But um, one of the I think the struggles that people have in the financial technology space is looking at security partners and trying to identify which of the security companies that they're that are in front of them are actually going to be the best fit for them. We hear this a lot at Finnovate from people who aren't experts in the security space. How do I know which companies are right for me? How do I yeah. know which companies that are up there? You can see as it all promise very similar things. What's kind of the, the best way to make that decision? And this is obviously an area you have some experience in as well. You're looking at these companies as a potential investment. So you are looking at a deeper level, I think, probably than most bankers pro- would. What advice do you have for bankers when they're kind of weighing which security companies they should be engaging with, who they should partner with, um, and, and how they can make those decisions intelligently? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do this very quickly. 
But, I, you know, with most of the banks, there's a big concern about whether or not, you know, the technology is too new and unproven. That's the last thing they need is to have that run wild and then create all kinds of new problems for themselves. So uh, many of the solutions that are out there, you're going to be looking at them and trying to evaluate them based on who else have they done business with before and how well is that going? Obviously, having referenceable clients and customers is helpful. But one of the things that I've seen that works really well is being able to execute the pilot that says, hey, give me your data. Give me the last six weeks or the last six months. Let us analyze it. Let us turn our algorithms loose on that data and come back to you and tell you what we found. And hey, we're going to go find the fraud that you didn't know was happening under your very nose. And we're going to show you that had you had our solution in place, this would not have happened. We would have prevented this from taking place. And so that gives you a a level of credibility when you're going in and speaking with the folks that are putting a lot on the line when they're making a decision about who they want to bring on as a vendor that's going to help them deal with this broad solution um, uh, focused on on fraud prevention, et cetera. So I think that um, being able to show that it works, um, being proven um, in the marketplace helps a lot. And then if you can find a way to get in with the bank in particular um, on a trial basis, but giving you a sandbox by which you can play and show just how good it is, I think that's that's one of the best ways um, to kind of earn the right or the opportunity, if you will, uh, to do it on a much larger scale with um, some of the organizations that are uh, probably more concerned about this um, this issue and this topic than almost any other sector in the economy. Yeah, well, I think that's kind of the the more optimistic place to end here. The idea that as much as the types of attacks are becoming more complicated, so too are the ways we can combat them. And the number of people and the, and the quality of people who are innovating in this space continues to grow. There certainly are no shortage of people who's, who see these problems and really are doing impressive things to try and combat them. And so maybe that is kind of an optimistic note we can end on there because um, we were in danger for a minute of having just a really dark... <laughs> and depressing episode. Um, I I should also mention, by the way, coming back to what William said at the beginning, uh, if you are interested in hearing more from him on kind of the the diversity and inclusion side of what Aperture Venture Capital does, he will be speaking at Finnovate Spring coming up in May in San Francisco. So uh, if you want to hear more about that side of the story, you can absolutely do that at Finnovate Spring. Don't forget, podcast listeners get a 20% discount to come. Uh, But William, it has been my pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts around some of these really important issues in our space. Thanks for having me. It was was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. The Finnovate podcast is produced by Informa Connect in association with Provoke.fm Media. Check out Finnovate.com for information on Finnovate's upcoming shows and to learn how you can get involved. The discount code Finnovate Podcast will save you 20% on tickets to all of our events. And you can email us at info at for information on sponsoring, speaking, or demoing. Thanks for listening.